Welcome to Worldwide Bible Class. Pastor Wolfmuller here. Uh, we are studying the life of Jacob together with Martin Luther. So glad you, if you're live, we're so glad you're live. If you're watching the video, uh, join us live. It's Wednesday mornings, 9 o'clock Texas time. It's really great. Uh, let's get after it. We are studying uh, Genesis chapter 31. And this is where, well, before I switch screens, let me tell you what, let me kind of set it up. So remember that uh, Jacob has been working for Laban, his uncle, for 20 years now. And seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel, then uh, plus another six years for the sheep, or the flocks. And he's he's prospered Laban phenomenally. And Laban has just been a tyrant. He's given nothing. He's he's just cruel and greedy and malicious. So he's he's nasty. So so finally, the Lord says, go. And he goes and he checks with his wife. In fact, they come out to the field and they say, yeah, let's go. I don't know why you're hanging around for so long. So he leaves, but Laban gathers up his sons and they and they go uh, and they start chasing down uh, Jacob and they get to him in Gilead. Remember, maybe I should draw you. So this is how it should. Mediterranean Sea, uh, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, uh, wilderness over here but this is where the three tribes g-a-m-e game so gilead ammon moab edom and so they're there gilead that would be on the east northeast east side of the sea of galilee he tracks them down there and the lord had stopped laban on the way and said look don't don't be cruel to jacob take it easy on jacob but he, don't lay a hand on him because who knows what Laban was going to do, this wicked guy, if he was going to arrest him or whatever. But um, don't even speak against him, the Lord says. So Laban doesn't lay a hand on him, but he does accuse him. And then now this is where we are. We're in Jacob's response to that. to that, And he says, oh, come on. You, you have been such a cruel tyrant and so wicked that... That, I mean, you can hardly stand it. So just to catch up the text, uh, Genesis 31, 26, Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin? What have you so hotly, why have you so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that, uh, that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which I, uh, which was torn by beasts I didn't bring to you, I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day, the drought consumed me, the frost by night, my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you've changed my wages ten times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So here, here we have the, uh, here, the, the affliction of Jacob and, his, uh, and his, his railing against Laban here. So we're in the middle of Luther's comment on it, and but we'll just pick it up here. And again, I might move a little faster than normal. Stop me if you have questions in the chat. I'll try to keep an eye on the chat, et cetera. But that's um, but I want to just because three or four pages from here, it's real good, and I want to try to hustle along. So here we go. He rebukes him quite severely. That is Jacob rebukes Laban, as though he meant to say, "Since you found in me neither a sin of omission nor one of commission, you should certainly not have pursued me so furiously and ardently." But you should have recalled our relationship, that I am your son-in-law, and your daughters are my wives. But without any regard for family loyalty, you've raged against us so madly that you have forgotten that you are the father of your daughters. This is this accusation that Luther's making of Jacob, that he has no familial love or um, compassion at all. He treats them all like slaves. As for me, even if I were not your son-in-law, I'm nevertheless your sister's child, for you're my uncle, not only my father-in-law. Therefore, a closer bond of relationship could not have existed between us unless I were your own son. If Jacob had died, Laban would have been his legal father. That's interesting, isn't it? 
So we are related both by blood and by marriage. But contrary to all the duties of family ties, you not only honor us with no gift, but on top of it all, you try to rob us of those things which have been granted to us by God. What a, you know, real piece of work. So he correctly says, you are not angry or furious in a human way, but you have plainly been disturbed by a diabolical and infernal madness. You are saturated with the fire of hell, and you flare up against innocent people who are your closest kinsmen. If it were my lot to have been to have an honest and honorable son-in-law and my son were degenerate, I would certainly transfer all my substance from my degenerate son to my son-in-law. This is Luther commenting, saying, look, here, here even if he just as his son-in-law, yet he look how godly he is and how, how holy he is. And the sons of Laban are, you know, pieces of work as far as we can tell. But Laban inverts and perverts the whole natural order of all duties. He robs honorable daughters and an excellent man, his son-in-law. This is the first thing. So so he can't even already see that that Jacob served him faithfully, that he's led to the increase of all of his flocks, that he should have honored him. Instead, he was stealing all of his stuff. It's incredible. But Jacob makes an addition and piles up more. You have fell through all my baggage. That's all my property. Oops. He says, this too does not become a wise man endowed with a noble character, especially in reference to matters concerning his son or daughter. For it's disgraceful to scrutinize each individual thing, to feel and examine people almost to the living skin as if they were the worst enemies. I don't know why this sentence just made me think of like the TSA, you know, anyhow. Indeed, even against an enemy, no one would have right to act this way. But come, what did you profit, he asks, or what did you find by your careful examination? except that you showed that you were angry without a cause. If you are too little moved by my judgment and cannot determine whether you, am I, you or I am mad, let the matter be referred to judges and let our brethren judge between us. He makes him the offer of a decision at law, but convicted and confounded in his own judgment, Laban does not dare to make even a sound. So this is uh, Laban's being accused here by Jacob, and he's, and Jacob's never done this. <clears throat> Jacob has been so quiet, so peaceful for 20 years. And now how old is Jacob at this point? He's he's 106 years old, I think. I mean, he's not a young man. He and he's been, and he's done all this hard faithful work for Laban. And now and now this is uh and he's suffered all this abuse and finally he's speaking back. Okay. This is obviously Luther comments how the ungodly hypocrites should be treated. The righteous man is absolved and the, and the ungodly man is handed over in his place. For the evil that he was devising for others has redounded on his own head. In Psalm 7, verse 16, for example, it's stated, his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own pate his violence descends. This is a, can I click it over here? Yep. Here, th This is a, this is one of the marks of these early Psalms. In fact, I was thinking I was thinking about these passages. Let me just since we're here, might as well talk about this. That that what's the context? Let me give you guys some context. I, I've been thinking some for the last four or five years on the doctrine of hell and what it means that the Lord uh will send what has a place of judgment and eternal condemnation for those who, who do not know him and do not follow him. And there's a theme that develops in the early... Oh, I bet I can't find it there. I got to find it somewhere else. Sorry. Uh, I'll keep talking while I'm looking. There's a theme that develops in the early uh, Psalms that, uh, that hell is not our own... that uh, is not God's decision, but it is our own doing. It is the that the Lord hands us over to it. And I'm not going to find it there either. And this Psalm 7 has it, Psalm 9 has it, Psalm 11 has it, that he, uh, his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. So that, so that hell is that which is earned by our own sinfulness. 
There it is in, in Psalm 7. If someone wants to poke around Psalm 9 and Psalm 11, you see the same thing, is that the the wicked, are their, their wickedness visits them, and that is their own punishment. So it's not like hell is 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 God, uh, like we're doing great, and the Lord says, ah, never mind, down you go, bam. No, hell is handing us over to that thing which we we ha ourselves have deserved. So, so see, his mischief returns upon his own head. The trouble that you tried to cause, uh, ah, I found it. I'll give you the verses. Psalm 510, make them bear their guilt, O God, let them fall by their own counsel because of the abundance of their transgressions cast them out for they have rebelled against you. Psalm 5 verse 10, Psalm 7 verse 15, Psalm 9 verse 15 to 17, and Psalm 10 verse 2. So that, <clears throat> so that hell is our own guilt being visited on us. It's an amazing thing. <clears throat> The evil that he was devising for others has redounded on his own head. His mischief returns upon his own head. But there's a question concerning the brothers, namely, what does Jacob mean when he says, uh, set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen? So Jacob has said, hey, we, we're going to have a, I want to have a court case here. Let's just do it. But Luther says, well, where did the kinsmen come from? Like, where did the, where did the jury of the peers kind of show up? What are they doing hanging around there? Um, from where does Jacob have brethren in the land of pilgrimage? He served for 20 years alone. Below it said to his brethren, gather stones, verse 46. My opinion is this. Here's Luther's guess at the brothers there. Uh, when, uh, when we do not have a clear text, we resort to guesses and pluck out the thoughts and meanings, be as they may. Uh, CJ says, could you do the psalm verses? Yeah, let me, push, let me write them up here so we got it. So let's do, uh, let's do, whoa, that's not so good. Let's just make a blackboard here, and then we can do this, and now we can remember how to do all these things, and I will write them for you. So this is the idea of the trouble redounding on their own heads. Psalm 5, verse 10, that's the first one. Then Psalm 7, verse 15, that's the one that we were quoting in the text. Psalm 9, verses 15 to 17, and Psalm 10, Verse 2. So those are the Psalms where it talks about how the, this is the idea. Their own guilt. So that the guilt belongs to the sinner, and that's the thing that's being punished. So that's a, it's a, And I mean, you see here, it's like right off the bat in the Psalms, it's, 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 it's right into it. It's, uh, uh, it's it kind of like the Psalms are setting this up that God is going to afflict the the wicked, but that's going to be the that's going to be the, the what the thing that they deserve from it. Huh? All right, good. Uh, let me see here, chat. Oh, James. Hey, James. How's Africa? Uh, are you in Africa? That'd be great. Dowries are pretty common in Africa. Inflation is afflicted that as well, and unfortunately, the young men like Jacob cannot pay. This leads to promiscuity. Many fathers or daughters don't care about their children. They'll chase the young men away if they don't get paid. The daughters left to raise the children without the father. Marriage and family is being destroyed because of a love of riches. The same problem in America, but the love of money and career is made an idol by children as well as parents. That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? How the seventh commandment affects the sixth commandment. And we know that, that you know, there's all these statistics of like people's earning power married versus unmarried especially for men and the value the, if you live a life if you're married versus and and wealth and marriage go together but the devil wants to put those against each other that's right jordan says uh notice that several psalms are missing from the lutheran service book why is this well so mo the last the history of the last three or four hymnals have not had a complete psalter because they've just picked the psalms that are most used in worship uh and so I, I think it's probably to save space because if there's hymns that you don't really use and psalms you don't really use, they're giving that space over to someone else. But there's a move amongst some to try to get all of the psalms in the next hymnal. So who knows how that'll go. Okay, uh, here we are. There's a question concern. Oh, yeah, where do they come from? 
Uh, Luther says, you got to guess. And here's his guess. All Mesopotamia seems to have been pasture land, and the inhabitants engaged in the pasturing of flocks, even as there are now. Therefore, there were shepherds throughout all the villages and towns. It's likely that Jacob had many, many relatives in his household from the house of Laban who worked for him as well as his father-in-law. Their services were divided, some serving Jacob, some Laban. But those who went with Jacob were undoubtedly good and godly men, as also stated above, in the household of Abraham in regard to Hagar and Abraham's servant, who attached themselves to him because of the purity of his religion, so that the people were sorting themselves economically, even according to faith. And there's something about that. I was thinking about it the other day, how we need many more Christian business owners, small business owners, so that the Christian, so that they can hire people from church that they trust. Therefore, he means the brethren from the relationship of Nahor or Terah. They returned with Jacob to his fatherland, and he had needed their services at pasturing the flocks. For the two wives were occupied in nourishing and caring for the children, who were still of a tender age and weak. On his own, moreover, he could not pasture such a large flock, even though he did, and we already uh, mentioned this, he was already uh, serving out in, you know, day and night out in the woods. And and remember how he, one of the accusations he makes against Laban is that, look, even if a flock was, if a lamb died or got lost or was torn up by a wild beast, I didn't even, you know, I absorbed the loss on my own. So he was out there doing all the hard work too. He was, but he wasn't doing it alone. It was huge flocks. In fact, that's one of the things that Luther's going to note is that before Jacob got there, Laban had tiny little flocks that the young girls could look after. They didn't need all, even the boys didn't have to look because they were, the flock was so small. And now you have this huge, big flock. Hmm. Uh, come then, he says, let us choose some on both sides from our relatives and kinsmen by whose decision this quarrel may be settled. It's a very prayer, fair proposition. And Laban is put to silence by divine authority, his own conscience, his previous life, and the public testimony of all men, and even his brethren, to such an extent that being convicted and confounded, he finds nothing further to reply. Uh, that's the, this is the, this is the charge that that Jacob uh, levels on Laban, and he's got nothing. Luther continues. We read this text already. Here's Luther's translation. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your she-goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. Of my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. By day the heat consumed me, the cold by night, and sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house, I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. He was always tinkering with it, because remember, Jacob had the system for the to breed the goats, and Laban would see it, and it wasn't fair, and so he'd change it, and then it would change again, and change and change and change. And, it's, and at some point, uh, it, this was not the, the scientific genius of, of Jacob that was accomplishing all the success, but just the Lord himself was giving, was smiling upon Jacob, and Laban was getting furious more and more and more uh, that he would have uh, been, getting, been getting angrier and angrier at Jacob. It's amazing. Here, Jacob not only rebukes his father-in-law, he also incriminates him. And by means of all the details, amplifies Laban's horrible ingratitude and his own cruel servitude. For he mentions and expands his own merits and good deeds so that Laban's wickedness and ingratitude may loom larger. Moses sets forth the example and perfect picture of an excellent and faithful servant, the like of whom is non-existent elsewhere in any stories. Luther says, who, could, who, can, find a, who can find a man like Jacob? You know, he, 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 he's been committed to Laban's good for all these years, 20 years, nothing in return. Today, how sad, all too common the complaints of all fathers of households are regarding the treachery and dishonesty of servants. With such care, Jacob says, I served you, that your ewes and she-goats were never sterile. Can the shepherds bring it about that the flock is not sterile? Much depends in every way on the faithfulness and care of the shepherd. The worthlessness of our shepherds is well known. Here, Luther, <laughs> Luther's talking. He sees Jacob and he's like, oh, in Germany, the servants, the laborers, the shepherds, they're all miserable. <laughs> it's really quite amazing. 
he says, the, the worthlessness of our shepherds is well known. They're able to bring it about either by evil artifices or by negligence that the use of their masters die are sterile, waste away. And on the other hand, that those which they have their own property supply much milk, cheese, and wool and produce many lambs. Hence, much important attach, importance attaches to the merits and faithfulness of the shepherds, that they do not neglect the breed and care of the flocks. And if this is done, if it is done, it comes to pass naturally that the ewes bring forth offspring. Uh, someone who, I think Grizz on here was talking about how there's a double season for ewes and all this, and the shepherds know all these things, they're taking care of all these things. It's really quite, quite amazing. And, uh, and it's not then by accident that the Lord parallels the pastor to the shepherd. In fact, remember, it's the same word in Greek, poimen, pastor and shepherd, so that the pastor is to have a care for the flock, that, that the flock would be healthy, protected, safe, and fruitful. The wicked pastor, on the other hand, this is described in Ezekiel 34, where they're making themselves fat on the flock. That's not the case. So Jacob here is a is an example of a of a faithful shepherd. He's working for not for the Lord who's a kind over shepherd but for this cruel master. Mm. Therefore the ewes were fruitful this was brought about by my faithfulness and care that there might be plentiful offspring for the flock for 20 years they've never been sterile. In these regions as in certain parts of Italy the ewes produce young twice a year. Hey. There it is. And to this end, there's a need of much care that the breeding of the flocks is not neglected. Therefore, this is an example of a faithful servant that's quite incomparable. How could Laban escape being enriched even while snoring in idleness, seeing that his faithful servant did nothing else but increase the goods of his master? In the second place, he, Jacob, says, I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. It is permissible for shepherds to slaughter a sheep on occasion or at least live on the milk and cheese and to clothe and cover themselves with the skin and wool. But Jacob chose not to make use of these privileges. He preferred to let everything accrue to the advantage of his master, even at his own loss. So Rachel had good reason to say above that her father had devoured and used up her wages so that they're getting nothing. In the third place, he says. that, And so here Luther is kind of categorizing the argument that Jacob's making against Laban. That which was torn by a wild beast, I didn't bring to you. It was not permitted to do this, although in all fairness, he should not have been required to enter his own accounts what had entered into his own accounts, what had been torn by wolves or other beasts. I could not have kept flocks so carefully, he means to say, that a wolf could not at times drag off a sheep or two. So I should not have borne that loss. But because you kept on throwing it in my teeth, that this had to come about because of my carelessness, inasmuch as I allowed the wolf to attack the sheep, I was compelled to make restitution. So Luther says, why would Jacob have done this? He, it must have been that Laban whenever a sheep was lost because of a wolf or whatever, that Laban gets in there and said, look, you were, you were lazy. You didn't, do, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Now it's your fault. And Jacob would eat it. He'd eat the loss. Accordingly, he inflicted no loss on Laban, either by neglecting the breeding, nor by eating the flesh, nor by the ravage of wild beasts. It, I was the one at fault, he said. That is, I was guilty. I had to be the one who did it. I was compelled to make restitution and to pay back whatever was lost. This was assuredly very hard servitude and tyranny, tyranny even to pay for what cannot be preserved by the greatest watchfulness and care. However, it often happens that the precautious precautions cannot be taken within the walls of a house that a dog does not drag away something or devour it or cause some loss. Moreover, it's strange that this is brandy got into the Christmas cookies yesterday. That's the picture. You can't, when you have a brandy wandering around looking for a cookie to devour, you can't do enough. It's going to happen. This was Brandy also has a bone, a Christmas gift, a big bone. And she, instead of eating the thing, goes and hides it. We won't let her outside. She'll bury it somewhere. So it ends up buried like in the dirty clothes. Brandy. So Luther says, look, you can't be so careful that you can't, you're not going to lose something. You're going to lose something. If a dog is around, a wolf is around, a coyote's around, you're going to, you're going to, uh, you're going to lose something. He inflicted no loss on Laban, either by neglecting the breeder. It was his own fault. I was guilty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it is strange from what source Jacob had the means to pay back the restore what had been lost from the whole flock. We cannot gather from the story, but we can make a guess. Either his father Isaac sent him money or Laban paid him a small wage, which he used up almost entirely on these needs. 
so that this is greedy master should suffer no loss. My guess would be that from his own flocks, he would go back. That's how it goes. In the fourth place, he says, my theft by day, my theft by night. This is how it reads in Hebrew. Although the rabbis say that Yod in this place is a superfluous letter, but I do not agree with the rabbis in all matters. The meaning is, whatever men stole by day or by night was regarded as having been carried off because of my neglect and carelessness. I was compelled to restore and fill up the number, whether the loss had taken place by the wild beasts or theft. You never lost a thing, not even a strand of wool. Whatever loss occurred, I had to make it good. So Laban became rich entirely by another's care, toil, and sweat, and indeed by the injury and loss suffered by his faithful shepherd by the substance which is acquired from another's sweat, and by tyranny to others is cursed. Let me read that last sentence again, because it's like a parable. But the substance which is acquired from another's sweat and by tyranny to others is cursed. So if you're gaining from what other people are losing, if you, if you are making your own substance, if you're acquiring that from another man's sweat or by tyranny, then that substance is cursed. It's not gonna do it's not gonna do you any good. It's not gonna certainly not gonna bring you joy. That's how that goes. Okay. There was Jacob. Therefore, Jacob speaks in a fine rhetorical style and preaches the law to lead him to a knowledge of sin. Important to remember that this is the purpose of the law. The law is there to show there's three purposes of the law. To, to keep the culture society in check, but also to show us, and this is chiefly the theological use and the chief use of the law, to show us our sin, and then, third, to show us the works of love that belong to a Christian. But here he's preaching the law to show him what he's done. It, like in court, when the evidence is presented, to show you your own guilt. So, so here... But a hypocrite is ex uh, exclusively righteous. Hmm. Let me clear this away. But a hypocrite is exclusively righteous, and to him, he does not seem to be able to sin in any way. So the hypocrite cannot see his own sin. The hypocrite cannot see his own failures. He seems to be righteous to himself. The hypocrite can't say, I, a poor, miserable sinner. This is why the law there shows it. It's why that's one of the most important things that we, when we pray, forgive us our trespasses. That we are confessing the fact that we are sinners, and that we need the Lord's mercy and kindness. That we can't, that we can't get around it. That it that it belongs to us. That it if 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 we do not have His righteousness, we have no righteousness. You see, his righteousness is what we cling to, not our own. Uh, Romans 8 comments, the third use of the law is often used to bring in legalism, especially among the Calvinists. Fair enough. But we want to remember that the Lord does teach us to love and serve our neighbor. And that, that love and serve, he says, a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I've loved you. And the newness there is not the love, but how he loves. So he calls us to a self-sacrifice that's amazing. Uh, Romans says, early Luther had only two uses of the law. He had suffered under the third use of the law. by I, Rome, Romans 8, I'm going to push back on that because just what we're looking at here. Uh, and especially how if you, um, if you would look at uh, Luther's On Christian Freedom, and he talks about the, the, the Christian is free, servant of none, and the Christian is slave, servant of all, I would say that you'll you'll find that there, even just in the catechism. Pamela says, we lived in Colorado Springs for a time and were friends with some, some cattle ranchers who acquired some sheep. The first time the ewes had offspring while under the care of our friends, all the lambs died. The mothers didn't take care of their offspring. Our friends read about the animal husband related to sheep. Next time the ewes gave birth, the mothers and the lambs were paired in small pen, given time to bond. The pair went to a larger pen, you and lamb, so they could begin to socialize. They were reinduced to the flock, and the large would continue to care for them. Huh. That's pretty cool. Um, I have a message here. Could we describe the third use of the law as the responsibility of the redeemed? Yeah, but it's it that, that's fine. But it is it's um remember the law is um so, so it's 
when the, so the Lord shows us his will for us in the Ten Commandments, and this in, in an external way is kind of maintaining external righteousness, which is great. It's really good. The chief use of the law now, though, is because we are because we are sinners, because we are so fallen into sin that we don't know our own sinfulness. So we have to. It has to be shown to us. We we are. It's like um. Re- remember the picture of the person who falls off the ladder and they break their back, and um, and they don't know that they've broken their. They don't know that they've broken their leg, and so they have to. They have they because they, they can't feel it, and so they have to be told, oh. You you broke your neck. You you you're that Luther used the picture of leprosy because when you have leprosy, you you can't feel your own hands or whatever, and and so you don't you you don't have a sense of how bad you are. So the law reveals the guilt of sin. This is the thing that Paul is doing. Apart from the law, we wouldn't have known what it is. You shall not covet. But the law came along and it made sin exceedingly sinful. So that the law shows us, uh, and it shows us this in such a way that it shows us our own sin. And it shows us our own weakness, which is our own inability to fix ourselves. In fact, the law the law shows us that it cannot save us. That's part of the point of the law that we that we can't by the law be saved. That we need something else. We need another. We need a savior. So in that way, the law not only points to our own failures, but the law also points to its own failures and to the to Christ who is perfect, who is to come. So that's second use. What's commonly called the third use of the law is, so the second use is necessitated because of the fall. So also the third use is necessitated because of the fall, because in the fall, we lost the Holy Spirit. Part of the loss of the image of God is the loss of the Holy Spirit. But as the Lord is restoring that image in us, first by faith and then in the resurrection by ontological reality, as that is being restored, so also the Spirit is restored to us. But that means that the Christian lives a life that's different than the not Christian. And this is this is so clear, uh, not only in the Scriptures, but in our Lutheran fathers, but it's a thing I think that's been lost in, in the Lutheran Church today— is that there's no difference, that it's all external righteousness. We say, no, no, uh, there is a way. Here, here's the language that the Lutheran confessions use, that the Holy Spirit gives us new motions. There's a new thing that happened. There's new things happening in our heart now that we are Christians. For So, for example, the second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, is a command to pray. Apart from the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ, there is no desire to pray and, in fact, no capacity to pray. You cannot pray our Father when God is not your Father, when he has not adopted you as a child into his own family via baptism, via the Word and Spirit. So so that, that, so that prayer is now a, a life opened up for us because of the gift of the Spirit. So, okay. Um I'm just looking here, Pastor May. As pastor saying, the law cannot fix these diseases. The gospel is the medicine. Sheep are unable to heal themselves. That's exactly right. Okay. A lot happened in the chat, and I missed it. I'm going I'm to keep going because, look, I'm pressing towards... Let's see. James, it's very hard to keep sheep. They're dumb animals. Do you know the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Yes, this is... Uh, the, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Yes, yes, yes. The laws of marriage shows dirt on our face. Yes, yes, yes. Good. Very good. Um, Jacob, speaks, Jacob speaks in fine rhetorical style. He pre- oh, yeah. But a hypocrite is exclusively righteous, and to himself he does not seem to be able to sin in any way. It's impossible to bring such men to a knowledge of sin and true repentance. This, this hypocrisy is an inoculation against repentance. In the fifth place, he says, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, this was somewhat more tolerable in the first 14 years than then in the last six when he was serving for himself and for his wives and children to increase his property and to make provision for his own house. It was certainly very hard to bear the heat and cold and sleeplessness at the same time, for bodies have need of rest and sleep so that they are not too exhausted by too much fatigue. 
But why did he suffer so much? Because thieves and wolves pay no attention to heat and cold, to nighttime and daytime. So I was compelled to keep watch near the flock day and night, he says, night and day. I did not dare to use the heat or the excessive cold as an excuse. I had to leave home, and all these things turned out to your advantage and gain while I toiled hard and sweat so that your flocks might increase while you were snoring. <laughs> but where will you find an example today that is equal of this wonderful faithfulness? Both nobles and peasants who are involved in raising livestock all complain about the treachery of the shepherds, and so they say that the flocks of their masters are afflicted with the mange, sterility, other maladies, and are torn also by wild beasts. And So the sheep of the shepherds, because the care of the former is inferior, the shepherds provide and improve their own profits from the losses of their masters. Whether fable or true story, the following is told everywhere. A certain shepherd was dragged off by a nobleman for punishment on account of crimes and thefts. When he was about to be sent to the cross, he was asked by the nobleman whether he knew another honest and faithful shepherd whom he might place in charge of his livestock. He said he did not know anyone, that they were all of the same stock and some were considerably worse. They say that the nobleman was moved by this response to grant the shepherd life and to retain him since he couldn't find a better one. <laughs> now that is really... <laughs> Luther says, here's a story. I don't know if it's true or not. He's about to go and hang the faithless shepherd. He says, where can I get a faithless faithful? He says, I'm the best of all of them. <laughs> They're all. It's really good. TJ says, it's interesting that Luther pointed out the need for rest, yet he pushed himself to the point of failing health. It's true. Sometimes you just got to go for it. Uh, let's see. In 40 years, I never saw discussions of the law lead to compassion ever. Here's what we seek when we seek, a compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment of how they carry it. I think, I don't, so I cannot, I, well, I can't, I'm not going to deny that, but I can't also confirm it. I, it is, in, there is something, when Jesus says, a new law I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That means that we must know the love of Christ first for the new law to make any sense. So, so I suppose in that way, the law, without the knowledge of the gospel, cannot lead to compassion. We have to know the love of God in Christ first. I think I can confirm that. Uh, therefore, the practice of our times and our servants eminently illustrate the virtues and faithfulness of the shepherd Jacob. For it's quite a singular example and is a clear what great difficulties there are today in the domestic sphere in the midst of such great treachery of men. But these disadvantages must be borne in silence until God calls us from this life into a better one and demands punishment for the sins of the wicked. No one can display such faithfulness as Jacob faithfully displayed to his unrighteous master if he does not believe in God and depend entirely on faith in the word. In other words, how can you be so willing to suffer and to be such a faithful servant? He says, this is it. The only way you get such faithfulness, such long endurance and suffering is by faith in the word and a trust that God himself is going to take care of you. It's amazing. Okay. Jacob adds further. So here's Jacob's kind of closing argument. I served you 14 years, in addition, six for the sheep, which fell to me in place of wages. You changed my wages 10 times in this period of six years. He was not content with being enriched for 14 years by Jacob's service and faithfulness. He wanted to rob him of his due wages. So Jacob expands the rebuke as much as he can to incite him to the acknowledgement of his sin. But he, Laban, has a heart harder than a diamond and an anvil. From this it appears what great patience and faithfulness there was in the patriarchs. The martyrs also suffered very many atrocious things, but there's no comparison with the hard toils of the patriarchs and the dangers they encountered. This is, you know, the martyrs, Luther will say in another place, that that Noah is the Noah is the highest of martyrs, the greatest of martyrs, 
because he endured the unbelief of the world and the mocking of the world for 120 years. Luther will also often make this note that the, the martyrs suffered their afflictions for a couple of days or a couple of hours until they were burned or eaten by the beasts. But the, the patriarchs here, they're suffering for years and years. It was great patience to endure such tyranny for 20 years. But this change of wages came about as has been stated above. Okay, 42, Luther's translation. If, God, if, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, and here we're going to get into some, this is where we're headed, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Now, it's an, it's an amazing thing to me that Jacob, and I don't know how this happened, but that Jacob knew that God had come and visited Laban in his dreams. Maybe, I mean, I think Laban might have mentioned it, but Laban kind of mentioned it in a twisty way. Like Laban didn't say exactly what God had said. But Jacob seems to know. God saw my affliction and rebuked you. In Hebrew, it's put absolutely with the accusative. God has seen it and is therefore rebuked. So cruel was Laban that he would not only have dismissed him empty-handed and naked, but would have dragged him back into slavery if the divine warning had not intervened, as has been stated previously. But this is an outstanding passage, the like of which we have not had previously, because of the name, the fear of Isaac. Ha-ha, to Hebrew, is fear, to be terrified. In Psalm 14, we read, there shall be great, they, uh, there they shall be in great terror, etc. Now notice, by the way, I just want to point this out, how Luther is getting his um, his definitions, uh, if you will. So he he'll he'll get grab the Hebrew word and then he'll go and he'll grab a passage that gives you the example of it. If you're learning a language, this is a great way to learn it. You know, in the old dictionaries, it used to have here's a sample use of the word, so that for each vocab word, you kind of have a sample verse where it's to go to. And so Luther's sample go to for the word. Aha is the Psalm 14.5, great terror, for God is with the generations of the righteous. So the hypocrites fear where there is nothing to be feared, or, and, and this idea here is, or says elsewhere in Proverbs, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. That's the next part. The wicked flee when no one pursues. This is So there's fear where there's nothing to be feared. There's irrational fear. There's there's fear not of an object, but just fear itself. It's sitting there. They were, uh, they were the they were the ones who were. Uh, the, there's another passage. Where's this one? In Numbers, they flee at the shaking of a leaf. That's the picture of the bad conscience. This is the. This is the picture of a of of, of a person living in terror. Everything around them is frightful. So it's commonly explained, but one, but it must be understood of worship. So, so fear is connected to worship. And the reason is, is because, we've talked about this before, our heart is a fearing thing. It's going to fear something, so what is it going to fear? Uh, yes, yeah. is the Hebrew for great terror different than the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom? I, I believe so. I think, it's a, I think the word for fear for uh, there is ra, is ra? I think it's a different word. I'll double check in a minute. Uh, what does the Holy Spirit mean when making mention of the fear of Isaac? Now, could just I, I just want to note how many times that Luther is going to talk about the Holy Spirit being the author of this text, and this I think is very. It's 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 not even for for Luther. It's not even really a thing. He just he just says it. It's like. This is the Holy Spirit, but for us, it's just really important because, well, we've we've lived now 130 years on the battle for the Bible and the question of inspiration, etc. It's not for Luther. It's not an accident. It's nothing is an accident here, and it's the Holy Spirit is speaking. And whenever he wants to dig into the specificity of the words, that's exactly what he says. Look, this is given to us by the Holy Spirit, so we should pay particular attention to. To the words themselves. Okay? 
There is no doubt that he means God, for he adds, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. The fear is joined with God. Therefore, it's necessary that it is equivalent to God. The fear simply signifies God. So what is the fear of Isaac? It's not sharks or starvation. It's God. That's what This is a name for God. That's what's going on here. But, uh, what it, but it's something else. If it signified anything else but God, Jacob would not have joined it with God. For the honor and worship of God must not be transferred to another. This is just the basic theological thing. We worship and honor God above all things. Uh, but infinite, however, are the questions and explanations why he calls God the fear and res the fear and respect of Isaac, and why he doesn't call him the fear also of Abraham, but assigns the name to Isaac alone. I'll, so I'll call follow the simple and common meaning that he calls God by this name because of the outstanding and singular worship of his father Isaac, who feared and worshiped God with a singular piety. This is the common meaning, and it pleases me well. So that Abraham feared God, Isaac feared God, Jacob feared God, but Isaac was re was unique in his worship of God, and so the fear of Isaac. There. But in addition, Luther says, one must make note of these expressions. Uh, I moved it in. Mm -hmm. Which Moses set down with special emphasis, as I've often pointed out elsewhere. In Genesis 2, 22, for example, he says he took a rib and built a woman from it. He could have used another word, and it seems a more suitable word, but by this richer word, as it were, he wanted to indicate that woman is God's building, not only because of the mystery of the church, but also in domestic sense, because all scripture employs this way of speaking about women, stated in Exodus 1 concerning the blessing of midwives and their remuneration, that God built their houses. Rachel also said above, go into my maidservant to see if I may perhaps be built up from her, that is, that I may acquire offspring and posterity of my house or family. For a woman has been especially created for this purpose, that a house may be built up in her, that children and posterity may be born. So Luther's saying, look, when God uses, there's, he uses a couple of different words in Hebrew in chapter, Genesis chapter 1 about make and make and make, but then he got to Eve and he said, build. It's different. He says, we've got to pay attention to that when it's different. And when you get something like this, the fear of Isaac, you got to pay attention because that's different. Jacob likewise says in this place that Laban was rebuked. This is also said with significance, as also Rachel a little earlier spoke about the despoiling of God. For the devil with the evil angels is wicked, and wicked men is intent on hindering or overthrowing every good work. Accordingly, if any good is done, it's usually done by rebuking, by disputing, by contending, by snatching it out of the jaws of the devil and evil men. In other words, good works are fights, and amazingly so. Like, I mean, you never know a fight until you manage to find something good to do. And it seems like if you find something good to do, that it would be, okay, it'll be fine. I'll get it done. But the devil comes with all the demons and hordes of demons to resist the good work. But this is Luther saying, we've got to pay attention to the words because they're given by the Holy Spirit. These and similar expressions, which are set down so distinctly, if I may so say, so carefully, should be diligently noted in Scripture. In this passage, therefore, I regard the literal sense as the closest to the truth, namely, that God is called fear of Isaac on account of the excellent worship of the latter, Isaac. Others interpret it to mean that Isaac was afraid since he was to be sacrificed. This is a foreign and wicked meeting, for Isaac was neither afraid nor terrified, but on his own accord obeyed his father and God. For not terror, but spontaneous obedience and fortitude should be attributed to the saints. For fear signifies that sin is ruling, and sin was not ruling in Isaac, but an obedient spirit. We didn't read Isaac and Jacob. Maybe we'll go back and do that, but here we are. I mean, Isaac and, and Abraham and Isaac. Uh, but we'll leave that for a later study. Uh, although the flesh fought back, nevertheless the spirit, which subjected the flesh to itself, conquered and, and gained dominion. This is our Christian life, the flesh and the spirit in battle. Besides this meaning, okay, so Luther says, good, fear of Isaac means that Isaac, maybe more than all the other patriarchs, had this single, uh, this kind of, this heart of the fear of God. And maybe that's why we have so little about Isaac, because he trusted God and things were pretty smooth. Anyway, 
just because you trust God doesn't mean things are going to go smoothly. That's not the point. But I, there's a lot of drama with Abraham and with Jacob and with Joseph. But Isaac seems to be pretty nice of, of the four patriarchs. But besides this meaning, and here's what we were aiming for, and now it's time to stop. But besides this meaning, I think that Christ is also pointed to for the Father, so that he's so that Luther is saying, not just is it talking about God, the fear of him, but also that this fear of, of Isaac is pointing to Christ. And here we get a, uh, this glimpse into how Luther's going to teach us to read the Old Testament, and it's wonderful. Christ is pointed to. For the fathers regarded the blessing as being distinct from their bodily blessings. This blessing, which is the seed, which is the promise of Christ, this was the chief, the, the, the chief blessing of all. In Isaac, your seed shall be named, says Paul, Romans 9, 7. He stresses the emphatic word, Ishmael's blessing was bodily the 12 princes. So remember that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So God was given the promise of this Abraham. God gave Abraham the promise of the seed, and Isaac was born, so that Isaac is the one bearing this promise. In Isaac, your seed shall be named, which is nothing else but Christ himself. He is the true seed, Jesus. For the fathers looked beyond the bodily blessing, which Ishmael and Esau had, chiefly to the spiritual blessing, which is Christ himself. Therefore, I see the Trinity here elsewhere, too, where I can dig it out of the mystery passages from the Old Testament, where I can dig out that mystery. Therefore, fear here signifies the Son of God incarnate. Oh, so phenomenal. So phenomenal. Lois says, what about Isaac's lack of not giving way to the promise that Rebecca understood with the twins. Well, that's true, Lois. And that did cause a lot of drama for Jacob, and that's why they had to deceive him and everything else. So so you see, when Isaac did doubt the promise is when the trouble came along. It's true. It's good. Okay, I, I look, here. Here, this is a foretaste of the feast to come next Wednesday <laughs> because we, we, we're, we're over time already. But you see what that this seed promise, this Genesis 3.15, that fountain of all the promises, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, et cetera, et cetera. This is a, uh, an amazing thing that, that this is the fountainhead of all of the promises that run all the way through the Old Testament. And it comes now through Abraham. Where's Abraham? Uh, it comes through Abraham and then through Isaac, and then through uh, Jacob and Joseph, etc. So that this fear here is talking specifically about the seed promise. And there's a lot more on that, and that's to come. Okay, let's pray, and then we will talk some more I'll, we'll, in the recording. And uh, and I'll get to—I've missed a bunch on the chat, too, so we'll come back to that, too. So, Oh, Lord, we give you thanks for your kindness and great love to us in Christ who was promised before the ages, who was the fear of Isaac and is now the a trust of all the world who call upon him and rejoice in his life and salvation and the forgiveness of sins that he brings. We pray in great joy that this promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph has been fulfilled and that we are the recipients of this great gift. Keep us in these promises and in these gifts through Christ our Lord. Amen.